like halfway there because we're finishing up 1 Timothy this morning, but we will begin um, 2 Timothy next week. Uh, and that will progress along a little bit, uh, probably quicker. It'll look similar to the Ruth series. We'll be tackling large portions at a time uh, in preparation for August and a new series that we will begin, uh, likely through a longer book within the Old Testament. Uh, we love to bounce back and forth um, to go New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament. So we began in Mark, we went to Ruth, now we're in 1 and 2 Timothy, and we'll be going back likely to a longer Old Testament book as we uh, pick up a new series in August. Um, but hey, this past week, um, we had a really neat opportunity here at Christ the King to, uh, to celebrate with um, like a handful of volunteers um, and about 25 kids that came in and out over the course of two days um, as we discussed uh, the creative power of our God. Maybe you saw um, on the wall as you came in on your left, there's um, this, this art project that they did, and that is the world made with um, coffee filters and washable markers and squirt bottles. Um, my favorite part might be the little praise hand emojis at the top. I don't know. Check that out next time uh, you guys walk by it. Uh, but the kids this past week uh, worked corporately to put that uh, together. That was almost entirely them. Uh, Rachel and Anna uh, were, were overseeing the craft. And so I just want to say thank you to all the volunteers who were like so super committed over this past week. It was a long uh, two days. Um, it was a bit stressful, uh, but it was also really good. Uh, one of the things that we want to do increasingly here um, is to become a part of the fabric, not only of this campus, uh, but also of our community. And we really need to work much harder. The first comes much more naturally because we're here, right? Uh, and so becoming a part of the fabric of the campus is not as challenging, uh, perhaps for uh, many of us, as becoming a part of the fabric of the community. And so uh, it was really encouraging to, um, to be able to invite these children and their families in, to sing songs with them, to do art with them, to uh, play uh, kickball with them. Uh, you guys should have seen Max Smith after that first day. It was uh, it was remarkable. It was remarkable. I've never seen so much sweat ever. So, uh, yeah, it was it was really impressive. It was really impressive. So, uh, yeah, what a, what a great time. We focused on um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, and this realization that in the beginning God creates and everything is beautiful and everything is good and it displays his wonderful character uh, through his creation, um, his love and, and even um, relationship with it, right? Uh, but then sin, of course, enters into the world, and there is this massive problem, right? And that everything is now broken, that everything has fallen. Um, but uh, Paul writes in 2, Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that we are created new in Christ. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And so that was wonderful to be able to celebrate um, that truth and that reality with these children. Ages um, 2 to... 12 is that what we did I believe so man what a what a massive uh, what a massive kind of like gap that was there a lot of a lot of good opportunities to have some really incredible conversations so um, as we were participating in camp I'll say this this was an observation that I made and it's becoming more clear to me I think as my son Judah gets older and that is the kids ask a lot of questions right um, for those of you that were uh, that were a part of camp or have children or work in the school system you're aware that children especially young children ask a lot of questions. I wrote down um, a few that I heard most often. Uh, what are we doing next? That was a, that was a fan favorite. Um, what are we singing next? What are we playing next? And my, my personal favorite, I think, uh, was why is camp only two days and not five days? Um, to which we said, we would all die. Like, that would happen. And so um, it's, only, it's only two this time and perhaps next time a little bit, a little bit longer. So um, here's, here's why we kind of start there is because I think that we can all agree that regardless of age or gender or ethnicity or socioeconomic status, um, questions are something that we can all relate with, right? Asking questions and um, engaging with questions. We love to ask them. We love to consider them. Uh, and to receive answers to questions. Questions are powerful, aren't they? Questions are, are, are powerful. Um, and there are, uh, of course, questions that are most helpful for you and I um, as we uh, revisit them often, questions whose answers we cling to. Here are a few. Um, what does it mean to follow after Jesus? And that's a, a question that um, would 
do us well to revisit on a regular basis, right? Um, what does it mean to follow after Jesus? Uh, what should we expect from the Christian life? Right, that's, that's number two. Here, here's a third and a, um, and a fourth. Uh, well, what is our message, right? Um, our message to one another and our message to the world, right? What is our message? What does it mean to follow after Jesus? What does it mean to live the Christian life? What is our message both to one another and to the world? And where does our encouragement for like all of this come from, right? Uh, where does it all come from? These are uh, just a few of the questions informed by what we read in the concluding verses from Paul to his beloved Timothy, right? to, to his friend, um, to his confidant, to his dear friend in the faith, even uh, referred to by Paul as like a son in the faith. Over the course of six chapters, we've seen Paul cover the church's handling of false teaching and false teachers. Uh, we've seen the importance of prayer. We've seen qualifications for leadership, for those of you who haven't been with us or maybe have missed some time, what have we been talking about for the past month and a half? Here it is. The role of women and um, instruction for relationship within the church, how the church relates with widows and widows to the church, how um, masters and slaves, co-workers and employees, right, how they all relate with one another. In chapter 1, uh, Timothy is encouraged by Paul to strongly engage the battle. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. That would be helpful to make a note of because we often consider not only um, how a book begins and ends, but how a book begins and ends, right? We don't read the beginning and then when we get to the end, we totally forgot what we had heard first, but we're always considering where we started and now where we are landing. Today, given that we are landing, right, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's helpful to revisit the call from Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Engage the battle. That's where, that's where Paul begins, right? There's this, um, there's this commission, right? When we, when we looked at the commission in chapter 1, we talked about knowing, holding, and teaching what is true. That's where we started. There's this commission in chapter 1, and as we conclude our time in chapter 6, um, there is a commission that we're revisiting. And so that's helpful for us to, um, for us to consider. Timothy needed to understand that faith is a battle. Timothy needed to understand, he needed to, to grasp, he needed to be confronted and reminded with this reality concerning the faith. That the faith, Christian faith, is a battle. And here's the deal, this doesn't exist in like some faraway cosmos outside of you and I and capable of relating with. But you and I are in need of realizing that faith is a battle, right? Like Paul reminds Timothy and he reminds you and I, faith is a battle. And so what are we going to look at? Here's our big idea for the morning. Um, we've got a handful of observations that we're going to walk through uh, as we seek to better understand this. But Take note, write this down. On the back of your card, um, which you can't keep, so it doesn't matter, um, there's a place for you to talk about response. Uh, but perhaps in your uh, notes function on your phone, if you bring a moleskin or a scrap sheet of paper, hey, this is a helpful thing to write down as we unpack this over our time together. We fight the good fight of faith with new hearts, eternal hope, and a new perspective. Right? We fight the good fight of faith with new hearts, eternal hope, and a new perspective. Um, that's what we're going to be unpacking this morning. And so let's begin with this observation uh, in verse 11. And that observation is this, that a pursuit of righteousness requires a transformed heart producing transformed desires. Let me say that one more time because that's um, lengthy, but it is up there so you can, you can follow along. Um, a, a, a pursuit of righteousness, which we are called into, Right? We're called to pursue after righteousness. Requires a transformed heart producing transformed desires. So let's begin in verse 11. Right, We begin in verse 11 as we seek to, to understand this, this point. Look at what Paul writes. Look at verse 11 with me. Paul writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now we're going to talk about the fleeing these things from and to in just a few minutes. But we have to begin understanding Paul's address uh, and this encouraged recollection to him by way of the first part of chapter 11. Verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 6. 
But as for you, O man of God, let's consider this. Let's let's reflect back on this reality. And maybe it's a new reality for you. If so, lean in. It's super helpful and most important. Men at one time at war with a holy God have been rescued. Okay? Men at one time at war with God have been rescued. Well, how? Like, by way of, of what? How have we been rescued? Well, we've been rescued through the righteous sacrifice of Jesus, right? We all come into this world as a result of Adam's rebellion in Genesis chapter 3 as sinners, right? Rebelling against God and his righteous rule, desiring worship of ourselves as opposed to worship directed towards him. Right? That's how we come into the world. And so we are, whether we realize it or not, whether you knew this or not, naturally at war against God as God is at war against sin. Okay, And so we are rescued. This is the recollection that Paul is encouraging Timothy towards and you and I towards by way of the first part of verse 11. We are rescued through the righteous sacrifice of Jesus, his perfect sacrifice in our place, his living out the law in perfect obedience, not just the letter, but the heart, the full intent, and then giving himself as a sacrifice. We refer to it as um, a a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice. That's a really fancy word, and you're like, wait a second, is there really a need for that? Words are important. We love words. We value words. And so what are we saying when we talk about Christ's atoning work? Right? And his propitiation in our place. His taking our penalty. Right, He takes our penalty as a sinless sacrifice. Laying down his life for the sake of the flock. That we might know fellowship with God. We are called into fellowship. We're transformed and then we are sent back into the world. Distinct from it with affections no longer for the things of the flesh but of the Spirit. And so let's boil all of that down, okay? Okay, tell me like four points that I can grab hold of. Here it is, okay? Sinners are saved by Jesus, okay? Sinners are saved by Jesus. And given that we are all sinners, there is this um, concession that we make that if salvation is to be realized, it requires what the Bible refers to as faith in him, that he paid for us and that his life, his death, his resurrection is all sufficient to make us alive in him. Sinners are saved by Jesus and we are saved into something. We're not only saved from the wrath of God, although we most certainly are saved from the wrath of God and apart from fellowship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are destined to become objects of God's wrath, right? The the wrath is to be poured out. It has been poured out on Christ and we can by faith embrace his sacrifice and thus experience friendly relationship with God or, right, we can continue to do our own thing and the wrath is to be experienced on you and I, right? That's kind of the way that this whole thing, uh, this whole thing works itself out. And so sinners are saved by Jesus into a new and friendly relationship with God. Then, this is the follow-up, we're sent out to live mission. We talk all the time about living mission, right? Like if you're here and you do tally march, I was talking to Sam Newsom, uh, I think last week after service, maybe the week before last, and he was showing me the notes that his son Sam took during church. And he's like 13 years old. I think Sam's 13. And he was, um, he drew a little diagram and he was, he was making marks of certain words that I said, right? So like every time I said Jesus, he was like, okay, there's a mark, right? Every time we said church, all right, there's a mark. If you did that every week, you would hear us say mission a handful of times. We talk about mission all the time. Why? Well, because we are saved into fellowship with Christ from the wrath of God and then sent out to live mission. And as we live mission, we're, we're doing something, right? We're displaying the glory of our King Jesus all through not our strength, but the strength of the Spirit of God that now lives in us. Does that all make sense, right? Are we on the same page? You're like, wait a second. All we're talking about so far is, oh man of God, right? Timothy reminds Paul in the beginning of his new, uh, his new relationship with God. 
because of what Jesus has accomplished, right? Without the transformation that results from reconciliation, right? New relationship, new fellowship, friendly relationship with God and spiritual life, the call for Timothy to flee the silliness of verses 3 through 10 is an impossible one. That's why it's so important to remember who Timothy is now, right? We sang about it just a few minutes ago, reminding us, God reminds us who we are now, right? Paul takes this moment as he calls Timothy to action to remind him of who he is now. This is super important. Let's consider some of the calls that would prove to be impossible if Timothy is not reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. In verse 3, Paul calls Timothy to flee conceit, right? He starts there, and then we kind of unpack these things, right? Uh, To flee conceit, to flee an unhealthy craving for controversy, to flee this desire to quarrel over words, envy, dissension, slander, constant friction with other people, and verse 6, unsound, unbiblical interpretations of God's word and work. That all has to do with this idea that, um, that, that, uh, that there is material gain that results from fellowship with God through Christ. That with godliness comes material gain. We talked about this last week. Reeking of health, wealth, prosperity, right? Flee from ungod, unbiblical, unsound, unbiblical interpretations of God's word. This is the encouragement. Now, here's the deal, right? Without reconciliation with God and spiritual life, this is not only undesirable, but is unobtainable. Right? All, that, all that Paul calls Timothy to as we work our way through this last commission, this, this bookmark, right, or this bookend on the book, would be impossible. It'd be undesirable. It would be unobtainable. Thus, we have this qualifier. The first few verses of verse 11. Look with me. Look at verse 11. What does he say? He says, but as for you, O man of God. Right? Paul's instruction is directed towards redeemed Timothy. Paul's instruction is directed towards the redeemed. Those who know and love God, having been known and loved by God. And so let's, let's embrace this idea, even before we get to what Timothy is to flee from, right? That obedience to righteous instruction begins with restoration, okay? And the resurrection power of Christ Jesus, Right? Obedience to righteous instruction, which we are seeing Paul unpack here as we conclude this book, begins with restoration and the resurrection power of Christ Jesus. Paul encourages Timothy not only to, to run away from the things that we have already listed and mentioned, but to run to something. Right? He encourages Timothy, this man of God, to flee from sin by the power and grace of Christ. Verse 11, the second part, by pursuing instead after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, right? Steadfastness and, and gentleness. Is everybody with me? Okay, so if we believe, as Christians, a few really specific things informed by God's word about faith, right? What God has to say about faith in his word. We believe that faith is a gift. God says this, right? We believe that faith is a gift, that it is given from the Lord. In addition, we know a few things about Timothy based on the writing of Paul and his work in Ephesus. We know that Timothy is a believer in Jesus, right? That he is redeemed, O man of God, right? We believe that he is, we can know that he is a Christian, that he possesses this faith that is a gift from the Lord. At which point we might go, okay, well, wait a second then. Why this encouragement? 
Like if Timothy is of the faith, if he is a Christian, if he is redeemed, if he is in friendly relationship with God now as a result of the work of Jesus, then why is Timothy encouraging him to flee unrighteousness and to pursue pursue after something that he already possesses? Right? If you already have faith, then why would Paul call Timothy to pursue after faith? If you possess it, then why would you pursue after it? Right? If I have a home, then someone comes up to me and says, pursue after shelter. I'm going to go, well, I don't need to. I just need to go home. Right? I don't need a new home. I already have a home. I don't have to pursue after that. If I have a job and someone says, pursue after a job, I'm going to go, well, do you know something I don't? Right? Like, um, I have a job. Right? I don't need a new job. And so how are we to understand this call to flee from and flee to for one who already possesses faith? Well, this is super, super helpful. It looks like, based on what Paul is saying here, that while we possess faith as followers of Jesus, we also pursue after faith. Right, to which we say this, that the Christian faith is an active faith. Okay, faith is active. Our faith, our Christian faith is active. It's something that we live, and it's something that we pursue after out of a heart that has been transformed by Jesus. Let's try to understand this a little bit more. This relates back with two questions that we asked in the very beginning. What does it mean to follow after Jesus, and what should we expect from the Christian life? I think that second question is the one that this really informs. What does it mean to live the Christian life? Well, uh, allow me to just to share some things. Right, to, to follow after Jesus is to lay down your life. Right? Being willing to lay down your life. Now, what does this entail? Well, it entails and includes our preferences, right? our, our comforts, our expectations, and our desires. Right? We, we lay down, as we follow after Christ, we lay down these things. We lay down our lives and begin to pursue after the desires of our king for our life. Right? We, we follow after Jesus, having been made alive, and now find lasting joy and satisfaction through fellowship with him. This is the idea that we talked about last week when Paul talks about uh, contentment, right? How there is joy in contentment for the Christian. Right, that we are content in all things, in plenty and in want. Right, when the road is um, easy, right, and the air or water, depending on if you're a plane or boat type person, is smooth, right, and when it's bumpy, right, there's there's contentment, there is joy in fellowship with Christ. The Christian life is filled with joyful sacrifice. Right, the Christian life is filled with, with joyful service to our King and Creator, the Sustainer of all things, the One who holds all things together as the Judge of the living and the dead. The Christian life is at many times and in many ways difficult. Is anybody acquainted with this reality, right? If not... Just chill for a little bit, right? And you will be. That the Christian life is oftentimes tumultuous. It's oftentimes, it's oftentimes difficult. But we say this in light of what we see here and in light of what we saw last week. That this difficulty is not to overshadow the joyful contentment that we possess, Right? If you're existing, dwelling in, laying in, discontentment in your life, then here's the reality. You are being, by grace, called into the contentment that Christ alone is capable of providing. Right? We need this realization that the world around us, that the things around us that are, that are, are fleeting and fading, right? that, are, that are dying and diminishing, disappearing, right? do not sustain us. Right? They, do not, they do not provide our contentment and our ultimate joy, but Christ does. Amen? Right? Amen? Are we good with that? Okay, I think that we can all be, um, I think that we can all be, be good with that. 
The Christian life is not a life of uh, godliness for personal material gain, plush and absent of sacrifice, but instead it is a fight of faith. Right? The Christian life is a fight. This is what Paul writes in verse 12 as he calls Timothy to verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. You can look, it's right there. I'm not making this up, right? There's a battle raging in your life, right? And there's a battle raging in my life, in our lives. Perhaps it is in um, certain relational realms, marriage. Perhaps it's in, uh, in certain uh, emotional realms. Perhaps it has to do, do with depression and anxiety. These things are all real, and we feel the battle that is raging all around us, right? Nobody's going to deny that, right? That there's a war that's going on. Right? Not just that we can see, but that we don't see. The Bible talks about this all over the place. Right, This spiritual battle, this war that's raging all around us. We understand that it's there. and We understand that it affects our lives. It affects our relationships, our emotional and physical health. Health. Right? We get that. There's a battle raging. That seems like horrible news, right? If that's all we're going to talk about. And so we have to emphasize the good news. And the good news is this, that our king is coming. And with him, he brings total peace. But here's the deal, okay? Like everybody settle in and listen for a second. Here's the deal. The battle is raging. Our king is bringing peace. But that ultimate peace is not here yet, right? It's not here yet. We, we feel it. We observe it. We know it to be true. Perhaps we deny it, right? We're always glass half full and we don't like to to really speak or acknowledge these things, right? But they are realities. The battle is, is being waged and it's not over yet. And so the encouragement from Paul to Timothy is to fight, right? To, to fight for the faith, to run from sin, to run from thoughts and desires and actions, to run from these things and to pursue after righteousness, to run from sin towards righteousness. So this is super helpful, right? Because we get not only um, like what we're leaving behind, but where we're going, right? If you don't know where you're going, we all get the old adage, anywhere will get you or any direction will get you there, right? You guys know that, right? You don't know where you're going and you just set out, man, any way is going to get you there, right? What we find out here, what we find out here is that we are being called not only to flee from sin, thoughts, desires, actions, but to run towards righteousness. So what does that look like? How do we understand what that is uh, to be? How do we identify it in our lives? Well, we run towards Christ, right? And we run towards Christ. As we run from sin towards righteousness, fighting for the faith, as Paul calls Timothy to do here, we run towards Jesus. And we cling to the word as the weapon for this fight. This is what Paul says as he continues on in the second half of verse 12. Look there with me. He says, to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, um, let's say this, that, that the American idea of the Christian life is for many in need of desperate biblical reform. Okay? That the American idea of the Christian life is in desperate need of biblical reform. Reform. The expectation of what it means to follow Jesus is in need of being taken captive by God's word, right? And 2,000 years of global history as opposed to 242 years of American history. And yes, I had to look that up. Very rarely do we expect labor, right? And very rarely do we in our context expect struggle and fight until our king returns or we die. But I love this statement that I came across this past week um, from uh, Desiring God on this particular issue. They say this, Oh, how different is the biblical view of the Christian life than the one prevalent in the American church. Oh, how, oh, how different is the biblical view of the Christian life than the one prevalent in the American church. 
Paul paints for Timothy, this young pastor leading a divided fellowship, a portrait of struggle as it pertains to the Christian life. Difficulty as it pertains to the Christian life. He, he paints this picture of a fight as an illustration for a life of faith. You know, there's a, um, there's a, there's a picture, and I should have got this for you guys to show it to you, but I'm going to give you a couple of names so you can, like, Google machine it later, right, and check it out. Um, there's, this, there's this picture that was recently, um, in the past couple of years, like, remastered with color. It's a, it's a picture of a boxing match from 1913. You may be somewhat familiar with it. It's fairly famous. Uh, originally, it's in black and white, but it was, it was recently in the past few years um, gone back and colorized. I don't know how they do that. Somebody explain that to me later, but uh, it happened. Um, and needless to say, the, the picture is one of these two fighters from 1913 in the center of a, of a boxing ring, and the match is over at this point. And there's a few guys, the, the contrast in the picture is really, like, interesting because there's a few guys, like, in suits and hats. They're clearly the money behind this whole thing. Um, but then you have these two fighters who are standing next to one another, and they're looking at one another almost with, like, this, this mutual respect because they are, like, beaten up, okay? Like, they're just, they're covered from, from head to toe, like just in blood, like there's blood everywhere, I guess from their, their mitts, right? Like they're fighting, they're punching one another, they're leaning on one another, and they're just, they're covered. And you can tell that like this battle has just taken place. This was way before the days of like the 12 round limit. These guys probably went like 72 rounds of boxing, right? Like that happened back then. And so uh, that's at least the way that I like to think about it in my, in my own mind. Now, here's why I bring that up. I want you to look it up later. Here are the two fighters. You can check it out. Um, Ray Campbell and Dick Highland. Ray Campbell and Dick Highland. These were the two, these were the two fighters. And I think it's the time the portrait was taken. Um, they are announcing the winner, and each one is looking at the other, and they're just like, wow, that was intense, right? I think that's probably what one said to the other. Wow, that was super, that was super intense. Um, here's why I say that, because um, in uh, our American context, given the freedom that we enjoy and that we are so grateful for, oftentimes I think we have this picture of the Christian life as a frolicking through fields of wheat at sunset, right? Like, I think actually I did this this past week. I Googled the Christian life, right? Or like what it means to be a Christian. Like I put it in Google and I typed, you know, images. And like the very first one that came up was actually that. They weren't frolicking. I think they were jumping. It was a group of people holding hands, jumping in a wheat field at sunset or sunrise. How can you really tell, right? So they're, they're doing this. And I was thinking to myself, man, if this is your expectation for the Christian life, oh my goodness. <laughs> like how? Like how do you do that? Like how do you, how do you, how do you live in that? Like how do you explain all the things that we feel, and maybe if we don't feel, that we observe in the world around us. We speak not towards the 252 years of American history, but again, the 2,000 years of global history, right? and the suffering, the fight for faith that is observable in the world all around us by the church. We need to, like, we need to separate this picture of the Christian life that consists of fields and frolicking. We need to remove that and we need to instead embrace this picture of Ray Campbell and Dick Highland having fought the fight, right? Like covered, right? Like just, just beat up, exhausted, right? This is the expectation of the Christian life. Paul encourages Timothy not to frolic, but to fight, right? This is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. And so let us take heart, right, as we're confronted with the overwhelming nature of this fight before us, knowing that we will every day have to um, consume the word, right, and, and take it and fight against Right, the things of this world with it. Let us be encouraged that God, while he gives us this gift of faith and he calls us to live a life of righteousness, equips his people for this battle, right? Because we're covered with blood, right? Like we can relate with Ray Campbell and Dick Highland. We are covered in blood, 
right? Only here's the difference, right? Is that we are covered in the blood of our Redeemer, right? Our rescuer, Jesus, who then by way of the Spirit empowers us to live this fight of faith. Does that make sense, right? Charles Spurgeon oftentimes uses this illustration of a, um, a carriage that's on a journey, and um, it's, it's going there for the first time. An individual asks uh, another, uh, hey, how do you get to this particular destination? And he describes for him the route that he is to take by carriage to this destination, and he tells him, it is going to be rocky. It is going to be bumpy. It is going to be, at times, turbulent. You're going to be tossed about. To which the man... Embarking on the journey responds, okay, sounds great. He gets into his carriage, and as he makes his way to his desired destination, amidst every pothole, right, and every jolt, he is affirmed that I am indeed on the right path, right? Like, we need to know that the Christian life is one that is oftentimes laborious, right, tumultuous, and oftentimes turbulent. But we are on the right path. Right? That we that we are on the right path, that we are covered in the blood of our King, and the Spirit of God resides within us, equipping us for this work. He gives us the Spirit, right? Applying His grace and strength, renewing our minds and calling us back into the truth of the Word and God's promises for His people. He gives us as hope for the turbulent Christian life. As we fight this, this fight of faith, he gives us his people, the church. This is so important, right? The, the, the church, we, uh, we love one another and we come together as the body of Christ and we love Jesus and we love one another together. We enjoy Christian community and we enjoy Christian encouragement and we enjoy Christian accountability all through membership within the local church. These are gifts. God's word is a gift to his people, right? That that affirms for us who he is, what he has done, what he is doing. Right? While equipping us for the fight of faith. He gives us a body of believers. Get this. Here's why we practice things like DNA groups. So we come together and we go, hey, like, what are you struggling with this week? Like, what's the, what's the challenge, right? How are you fighting sin? How are you pursuing after righteousness? So that we can say, man, it's challenging this week. Right? It's, it's, it's hard. And the body, by way of fellowship, in this manner, can encourage one another, right? Come alongside and pray for one another. Man, it's a gift. It's a gift from the Lord to live uh, the Christian life. And so that's our our first observation. We're going to move much quicker through the second, so don't um, freak out on me, right? The pursuit of righteousness requires transformed heart, producing transformed Desires. We begin there, right? And then we transition into this second idea, right? That God's election of the saints serves as a source of hope for the weary Christian. Let me say that one more time. God's election of the saints serves as a source of hope for the weary Christian. Well, where do we see that? Are you just making that up? No, I'm not. It's right here. Let's look at verse 13 together. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. Paul writes this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Here's the deal. Take heart, weary Christian. God has called you. God has called you into fellowship with him. You are his, and he now fights not with you, but for you. Jesus is faithful in his confession before Pilate 
affirmed through his death and resurrection, providing hope for you and I and our profession and identification with Christ before a people and through the ordinance of baptism. Let me revisit that because that's a big point. Jesus is faithful in his confession before Pilate. Paul draws that out. He speaks it back to Timothy. Why? Why is that so important? Why focus on the faithful confession of Christ before Pilate? Well, here's why. Timothy is pastoring an oftentimes disobedient people. He's in a hard situation. He's fighting for the faith. And there is an opportunity for him to be weary and to give up. Paul encourages him by way of the confession of Jesus. There is hope for you, Timothy. There's hope for you. There is hope for your profession and your confession, your identification with Christ. Why? Well, because Christ has been faithful, right? Jesus is faithful. That's the emphasis. Jesus is faithful to his mission, right? Jesus's confession is true. Jesus's confession is sure. In the face of difficulty, unimaginable, we see Christ's faithfulness. And so there's hope for Timothy and there's hope for you and I. Are you weary? Have you ever been weary of the Christian life? There's hope. There's there's hope for you and I and our profession and our identification with Christ because he is faithful you, we talked about the ordinance of baptism, right? There's, there's hope. We have, been, uh, we have made this profession, this identification with Christ through the ordinance of baptism. We've displayed this to the people. That's why we oftentimes talk about the missional nature of baptism, right? How if you are to be baptized, invite your friends, invite your family, invite non-Christians to come. Why? Well, because there is this public display of identification with Christ and confidence in his faithfulness, in his death, and in his resurrection that provides hope for you and I in our death and our resurrection. Jesus is the king who died for us, right? And Jesus is the king who comes for us. Paul writes at the end of verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. We see him emphasizing this this doxology, this praise that draws out our universal king, right? Our, our invincible king, our immortal king, our unapproachable king, our inconceivable king, all powerful and worthy of all praise. It's a doxology at the end, right? Before this last exhortation, he just finishes by focusing in on who Jesus is. This provides hope, right? This provides encouragement, For the weary Christian, we stand in awe of the greatness of our God, leaning in, in worship, directed towards Him. That's what this inspires. You want to know what the end of verse 15 and on into verse 16 inspires? You want to know the application from the end of verse 15 and on into 16? It's this, worship, right? It's worship. There's this emphasis on who Christ is. And in response to this unpacking, this presentation of the person of Christ, we lean in and we worship him. In verses 17 through 19, the call is simple. It's built upon this doxology of verse 15 and 16. Focus on him. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. The call, focus on him. As for the rich, Paul writes, In this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God gives good things for our enjoyment. And in response, 
we give good things for others. That's what Paul says in verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is true. God gives good things, and in response, the call is to focus on him and to good, give good things in response. We're revisiting some things that we saw earlier on in 1 Timothy, this call to live generously. Why? Well, because God is generous, and it displays to the world around us the character of our God as we live this way, out of a transformed heart and by the power of the Spirit. Let's look at verse 20. We're going to begin to land this thing. Paul writes, this last call, right, this last encouragement, he says this, O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Right, there's this there's separation that takes place, Right? Like what is called knowledge and its existence and actuality as foolishness, right? There's the distinction, knowledge, knowledge, right? False knowledge and, and true knowledge. How do we know true knowledge? How do we know truth? Well, we know truth as we are uh, called into fellowship with God. Everything begins to make sense, right? His word uh, illumined by his spirit begins to make sense. The world around us, its condition begins to make sense. Sense. There's true knowledge. Paul calls Timothy to avoid irreverent babble and contradictions. We, we talked about this when we were in uh, Titus. We revisit this often because I do think that it is really help, helpful for us. If there is such thing as um, irreverent, right, un, uh, unwise babble and contradiction, and there's also such a thing as leading into what is truly uh, worth fighting for, right? There are controversies um, that we engage with, and there are those that we don't. And God's Word helps us to understand uh, where those lines are, where we do step in and where we step out. For he says in verse 21, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And he concludes with this line. Grace be with you, right? Grace be with you. Man, this is, there's a lot here, right? There's a lot here, and there's um, this sense in which we come to the conclusion and we go, how? Like, how do we do this? Like, how do we, how do we fight? How do we flee? How do we pursue, right? How do we, how do we live these types of lives, generous, um, God-glorifying? How do we do this? Well, there's a sense of reliance as we conclude our time here, isn't it, right? Like, um, it's by grace. Like, there's a need for grace to live this type of life. We go back and re we revisit individually, corporately, this great display of grace from God for his people as he rescues us through the sacrifice of the Son, right? Grace. I mean, grace is how we do it. We're relying on grace. We need grace. We talk often of grace. Paul talks often of grace. He concludes this letter not as man grace. That'll be a great way to kind of like, you know, add the exclamation mark on the end. But there's, there's this sense in which this is needed, right? There's a need for this. We need grace as we live this type of life. We look to Christ. We observe God's great grace and his generosity as he rescues rebels from hell and brings us into fellowship with him. Wow, it's incredible. We consider what it means to, to follow after Jesus from a perspective informed by his word, not history, right, so much, or even expectation, but, but what God has to say in terms of what we ought to expect. I love what Dr. John MacArthur um, has to say about the conclusion of 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
And I think it's something that you and I can consider as we come to the table today um, as God's people, identifying the people of God and, and, and seeking to understand how we are to live our lives. He says this, that the man of God is known for, based on what we see in these concluding verses of chapter 6, what he flees from, what he follows after, what he fights for, and what he is faithful to. Right? That the man of God... The woman of God is known by what he, what she flees from, follows after, fights for, and is faithful to. And so what does that look like? What does that look like in our lives? What are we, what are we fighting for? Are we fighting for the faith, right? Like understanding that it is difficult? Or are we fleeing from sin and to Righteousness, holiness, Christ, desiring deeper intimacy and fellowship with Him? Or are we just content, right? Are we just like chilling, right? Chilling? Are we chilling or are we like leaning in and pursuing fellowship with Christ? How do we do that? Well, fellowship with His people, right? Fellowship in the Word. We fellowship and we commune with God in His Word and in prayer. And so are we leaning in? Are we are we fighting? Are we, are we faithful? Are we following? We can be. Did you know that? We can be. Why? Because Christ has been faithful, right? Christ has been faithful. And so there's hope for Timothy, right? And there's hope for you, and there's hope for me. And we can live these types of God-glorifying lives because He is faithful. And so let us lean in corporately this morning, as we conclude this, here it is, right? Here it is. We're, we're drawing to an end. There's this commission, right, on the end. Let us know, hold, and teach what is true. Right? And let us lean in and fight, right? Like fight for, fight for the faith. Hey, let's pray together. Amen.